Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the amazing things about God's providence is that he is able to use even the sin of humans to fulfill his own purposes. Now, this does not make God responsible for any of the, he- the evil that humans commit, not at all, but it shows us God's power to work salvation. He can bring good out of even the worst of human sins. Nowhere is this most clear than with our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter preached in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. He said the Jews had crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. men, A terrible sin. Yet Christ had been delivered up according to the God's plan and foreknowledge. God used their sinful actions to work a great salvation. And we see a similar thing in this story of Jephthah also. Jephthah's own brothers had rejected him, sent him away from his father's house. They sinned. But God uses the rejection of Jephthah to raise up a savior for his people. The one Israel rejected secures Israel's inheritance. But God did not only do this for Israel. God also worked good out of this situation for us sitting here this morning listening to this message. For by working this deliverance through Jephthah, God also points our eyes to our Lord Jesus Christ and to see the great salvation we have in him. And so as I preach you God's word this morning, I'll do so under the following theme and points. The Lord uses a rejected Israelite to secure Israel's inheritance. We have three points. First of all, the Savior rejected, the Savior accepted, and finally, the Savior victorious. Now, the book of Judges, it it shows us Israel's struggle of living in the promised land. Things could have been so beautiful. The Lord their God gave them a land flowing with milk and honey, everything they needed. They were meant to worship him in joy, being blessed by him all their days, every Israelite sitting under his own vine, under his own fig tree. But the book of Judges shows us Israel's failure. Time and again, they fell into idolatry. It was, of course, a constant cycle of apostasy, judgment, and then deliverance through a judge. And though Israel would be faithful for a time, things never lasted. And in Judges 10, we hear that constant refrain come up again. The people of Israel again did did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. However, there was something different about their apostasy this time. You see, Judges 10, it lists seven gods Israel worshipped instead of Yahweh, their God. And the number seven is, of course, the number of fullness in Scripture. And that means Israel serving seven idols, has, they have made a full and complete apostasy, complete rejection of the Lord. Seems they are serving any and every god but Yahweh. And so quite predictably, 
the Lord punished his people. He disciplined them. He gave them into the hand of the Philistines and the Ammonites. The focus of our text is on the oppression of the Ammonites. Our text says, our reading says, they crushed and oppressed Israel for 18 years. See, often, often it takes suffering to free God's people, to free us from idolatry. Well, this is not always the purpose of suffering, of course, but it certainly can be. Suffering can wake us up to the bitterness, the slavery, and the, the destruction that idolatry brings. And this was true for Israel. Israel was severely distressed, and so they cried out to the Lord. They said, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. But notice how the Lord responds to them. In answer to their sevenfold apostasy, the Lord describes his previous sevenfold deliverance. God lists seven nations that he has already saved his people from. And then he adds, every time you cried out to me, I saved you. But what happened? Soon after I delivered you, you turned to idols again and again and again. See, Israel only wanted help from God when times were tough. But when times were good, they forsook him again. And their repentance was kind of like Pharaoh's in, in the book of Exodus. When a plague came, you know, Pharaoh, he gave in for a moment. He did not like his suffering. But when the plague was gone, he hardened his heart again. Now Israel, the one God saved from Pharaoh, is now acting like Pharaoh. They turn away from the Lord once things are going well for them. And in that light, the word used to describe Ammon's oppression of Israel may be significant. It's used only in one other place in the Bible. It's used to describe God's punishment on Egypt in the book of Exodus. And Israel is now receiving that same punishment, it seems. So Israel's apostasy has become complete. And notice what the Lord says after lift, listing his sevenfold deliverance for Israel. He says, I've saved you these seven times, and you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go out and cry, cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you. And this is perhaps the worst thing that God, that could ever happen to us. That God gives us completely over to an idol. And so often we think we can serve two masters. God and our idols. But our Lord Jesus, he rejects that thinking emphatically. He says you cannot serve two masters. And so what if God were to say to us, okay, you want to serve such and such an idol? Then that will be your God. And that will be your only God. 
but then you don't get me. Call out to that God and see what happens. Will that God give you life? Will that idol save you from eternal death? If the Lord did that to us, then we would be, as Ephesians 2 describes it, without God and without hope in the world. We must count the cost of idolatry and turn away from idols. Now, in response to the Lord's message, Israel finally gives true repentance. They put away the foreign gods and they serve the Lord. And then we see the great steadfast love of the Lord on display again. Judges 10 verse 16 says he grew impatient over the misery of Israel. He could not bear to see them suffer as they were. He'd already give them a sevenfold deliverance, a complete deliverance, but in his love, he will deliver them again. The Lord our God not only forgives his people seven times, but 70 times seven. That is his love. That is, that is his mercy and grace. The Ammonites, descendants of Lot, they oppressed Israel again 18 long years. The Ammonites, they, they lived east of the Jordan River. This also meant the tribes on the east side of the Jordan, they received the brunt of their attacks. This was, of course, the, the tribes of uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And their region was often referred to as Gilead, as we see from our text. And the leaders of Gilead, during this oppression, they asked each other, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over the people of Gilead. Now these words, they already, they also, they, they show us part of the spiritual corrosion that's going on in Israel. These men asked each other who would lead the attack. They did not ask the Lord God. And that's in stark contrast to the very first verse in the book of Judges. There the people of Israel, when they were coming into the land, they inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Right? They prayed to God. They made it a priority. Unlike here in Judges 10. And prayer just should always be a priority for the people of God. We need to seek his blessing. But before a man is chosen, our text in, at the beginning of chapter 11, it makes a flashback two years earlier. Probably even before the Ammonites started oppressing Israel, the beginning of Judges 11, it turns the spotlight on Jephthah. Jephthah was a Gileadite. He was a mighty warrior. But as our text points out, he was also the son of a forbidden union, the son of a prostitute. And when his half-brothers grew up and he grew up, they drove him away from his father's house. They rejected him. They did not want Jephthah, the son of a prostitute, sharing in their inheritance. So Jephthah, he lived in the land of Tob, away from his family. And our text says, worthless fellows gathered around him. This could be materially poor people or spiritually bankrupt people. But whatever the case, 
The rejected son is surrounded by other societal outcasts. And this was certainly wrong for Jephthah's brothers to do this to him. However, despite their wrongdoing, God, again, by his powerful providence, would bring about wonderful things even from their sinful actions. This rejected Israelite would become the savior of God's people. And God even prepared him for this by having him live in the land of Tob for quite some time. He and his men would become skilled warriors uh, during this time away. And this also shows us God's power to bring good out of what we would call messy family situations. Think about what happened here. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. All his half-brothers despised him, drove him away. Great family strife. Talk about a mess. The whole situation stinks. But our God is powerful. And our God can turn any situation for good. And that's what he does here for Israel. And he not only turns it for Israel's good, also for our good. As I mentioned, these, these events also point us to our Lord Jesus Christ. The men of Gilead rejected the very man whom God chose to be the savior of his people. Now, who does that remind you of? Of course, that reminds us of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there was a, there was a bit of a dark cloud that hung over the legitimacy of Jesus' birth, at least in the eyes of, of many around him. After all, Mary was pregnant before she married Joseph. And in John chapter 8, some of the Jews, even they, they slandered Christ saying, we are not children of fornication, implying that Jesus was. Of course, Jesus' birth was not because of fornication. However, he too, like Jephthah, was rejected by his own brothers. Isaiah 53 prophesies about Christ, describes him as the one despised and rejected by men. Psalm 18 calls him the stone that the builders rejected. He was rejected by men even to the point of dying on a cross, dying for our sins. The world did not want him. His own brothers did not want him. And during his ministry, lowlifes, so to speak, they, they gathered around him too. The tax collectors and other sinners. They found new hope and life in Jesus Christ. Of course, God would use him to be the ultimate savior of God's people, also of us. For it was in his rejection that we are saved from our sins. It brings us to our second point. So the men of Gilead, they rejected Jephthah. And the ironic thing is they rejected the only one who could realistically uh, deliver them from the Ammonites, humanly speaking. This left them in a bond. They rejected Jephthah, the mighty warrior, and now the Ammonites are oppressing them they cannot defeat Ammon by themselves. 
So what would they do? Their only option was to humble themselves. Only option to seek Jephthah's help in humility. Stunningly, this mirrors the exact thing that Israel has done to the Lord in Judges 10. Israel had rejected God. They didn't want him in their life. They didn't want him around. They didn't want anything to do with him. But then they got into trouble with the Ammonites. And it's when they are in trouble that they finally seek his help. This is what they are doing to Jephthah as well. Notice what the Lord said to Israel in Judges 10. He first rebuffs their cries for help. Why should I help you? You have rejected me, says Yahweh. And Jephthah essentially says the very same thing. Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now that you are in distress? And if we were to put ourselves in Jephthah's shoes, we could understand their reaction. We might react the same way. Now, what did I ever do to you guys to make you hate me like you have? I didn't do anything wrong to you that you rejected me, drove me away. Do you expect me now to jump up and help you? And this is all meant to make Israel wake up to, to see how they've treated their God. But it's also a warning for us. We can also treat the Lord in the same way. Right? Does, does your own relationship with God, does it have this same character to it? Do you ignore God in your life for the most part? Don't really want him in your life? No, you, you never pray to him, never seek his will, never read his word. And then only when things go wrong, you, you send up a 911 call up to heaven. That's no way to treat our God. That's not a relationship with him. Surely God deserves all of our devotion, never our rejection. And God is showing his people through Jephthah, why, why would you reject me? I've done nothing wrong to you. And I'm the only one who can save you from your enemies. Now the men of Gilead, they did humble themselves. They came to Jephthah and they told him, come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. Of course, Jephthah first rebuffed them. The Gileadites persisted. We've come to you now so that you may go with us to fight Ammon and be our head. So it's an, an expression of, of total submission and reversal of their earlier actions. They didn't want Jephthah sharing in their inheritance. They drove him away. And now they offered to make Jephthah their head. And this would give him the best of the inheritance. They realize they have no choice. Their enemies are too strong for them. So they must now submit to the one whom they have rejected. It appears that they were initially reluctant to offer headship to Jephthah. At the end of Judges 10, they said, no, the man who begins to fight against the Ammonites will be our head. But when they first approached Jephthah, they only offered him leadership. It may not seem like much, but it may be significant. Only after Jephthah says no, do they promise to make him their head. Then Jephthah makes sure the terms of their agreement are clear. The Lord gives Ammon into my hands. I will be your head. No games here. No fooling around. No changing your mind. 
And the men of Ammon made a vow to God that they would do this very thing. And this again mirrors something of our relationship to the Lord. You see, a relationship with God where you only turn to him when you are in trouble, and for the rest you outright ignore him and do not submit to him is no relationship at all. Or think about Jesus Christ. Shall we try to take the saving benefits of Christ our Savior, but never to submit to him as our king and head? By no means. And yet this is how some try to make the relationship to Christ. He's there to forgive my sins. He's useful for that. But I don't want to follow him. I don't want to sub- submit to him as king of my life. But beloved, we can't have it both ways. Christ is our Savior. He has paid for our sins by his death on the cross. But he is also our King. And as our King, we must now submit to him. We have no choice. But it is also good. For through Christ's kingship, God's people are also victorious. That brings us to our last point. And one thing's, once things are settled between Gilead and Jephthah, Jephthah gets right to work. Before he engages the Ammonites in battle, Jephthah first tries diplomacy. He sent messengers to the king of Israel, uh, Ammon. Now, why are you fighting me? And this question, it led to an argument about the rightful owners of the land just east of the Jordan River. This disputed piece of land was the entire region of Gilead, which included the inheritance of the two and a half tribes east of the Jordan. And the king of Ammon here, he's accusing Israel of stealing this land from them when they came out of Egypt. But this was nothing but a convenient piece of revisionist history. And so Jephthah proceeded to give the Ammonites a history lesson. And his message to Ammon shows that Jephthah knows his Bible. Right? He may have been the son of a prostitute. He may have been an outcast uh, living far away from his, his father's house. He may have been a rough warrior with many rough characters around him. But he knew scripture. He knew the acts of God on behalf of Israel in the past. And how that has equipped him for this moment as well. We do well to do the same. The truth is that Israel never took any of Ammon's land. The Lord made it clear to Israel when coming out of Egypt, they must not take one square inch away from the Ammonites. The Lord had given Ammon their land. And scripture shows that Israel, they followed Yahweh's instructions to a T. And Israel's past obedience to the Lord helps them greatly in this instance. They are squeaky clean in their past dealings with Ammon. The, the accusations of the king of Ammon are simply false. He has no leg to stand on. And that reminds us of what the Holy Spirit teaches us in 1 Peter 2. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, 
They may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now the land in question had been the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Jephthah keeps referring to this in his message to the king of Ammon. And Sihon came out to fight Israel when Israel came out of Egypt and the Lord God defeated Sihon. And the Amorites east of the Jordan were destroyed. And God gave that land, the land of Gilead, to Israel. It belonged rightfully to God's people. And so this is Israel's inheritance at stake in this battle. Because of that, these are also God's promises at stake. This is part of the inheritance God promised to give to Abraham and his descendants. It's in danger now. And so Ammon is not just picking a fight with Israel. They're picking a fight with the Lord God. And that's essentially Jephthah's message to the king of Israel. What right do you have to take this land over? What will you not take what your God Chemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Now, Jephthah is not saying that Chemosh has any power, but he is taking a, rather a shot at their idol, their God. If Chemosh is your God, be satisfied with what you get from him. See, Sion and his God couldn't defeat Israel. They were soundly beaten. And what makes you think that Chemosh is now going to overthrow Israel and Yahweh? Be content with your land, Ammon, or you might lose everything because Yahweh will destroy those who trust in idols. Besides, if we have done something wrong to you, you've had 300 years to do something about it, but you didn't. You are sinning against us. We are not sinning against you. But the king of Ammon refused to listen. It was now time for war. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And Jephthah and his army, they advanced against the Ammonites. Of course, Jephthah here at this point made his vow. We're not going to dig into that vow now. Lord willing, we will cover that vow next week. But Jephthah fought against the Ammonites. And by the Lord's power, they devastated them. It was a resounding victory. Chemosh had no power. Jephthah devastated 20 towns and Ammon was subdued before Israel. And again, this shows God's grace towards his people. The people of Gilead, they rejected Jephthah because they did not want him sharing in their inheritance. And God then used Jephthah to secure their inheritance. Right? This is, this is complete an undeserved mercy towards God's people. This is the grace of God. And this is also what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. You see, there were many reasons why the Jewish leaders killed Jesus Christ, but one of them was that they wanted the inheritance of the land for themselves. And we know this because Christ said as much in his parable of the tenants in Matthew 21. In the parable, a landowner representing God, he planted a vineyard, the people of Israel, in the land of Canaan, he rented it out to some farmers. This refers to the people of Israel as a whole or the Jewish leaders. They were to take care of the vineyard for the, the landowner. 
And eventually the landowner sent his son. This, of course, refers to Jesus Christ. He sent his son to collect the fruit of the vineyard. What did the farmers, the, the farmer say and do? They said, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. Right? The leaders of the Jews, they wanted the inheritance all to themselves. So they rejected Christ and they killed him. But what did God do? He made his son king and head over his people. And it's this king and head, our Lord Jesus Christ, who secures our inheritance. What does God proclaim to his anointed king in Psalm 2? You are my son today, I become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And this is the inheritance promised to Abraham and to his children, those also who live by faith, we who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus right now is securing this inheritance over the whole earth as the gospel goes out. See, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, we will inherit the earth along with Christ our head. We're not going to be floating on clouds for all eternity we're going to be here on a renewed earth together with Christ. And when Christ returns, he will destroy all those who have refused to submit to him. He will gain a much greater victory than Jephthah. And then as God's children, we will enjoy that inheritance with our Savior. We will always be at peace. And no enemies will ever disturb us ever again. We will always serve the Lord. Amen.